0: From now on, any asylum seeker who arrives in Australia by boat will have no chance of being settled in Australia. As refugees. Human Rights Watch says it's seriously concerned by Australia's treatment of refugees and the government's response to criticism.
1: Australia's human rights record has come under scrutiny by the UN just 24 hours after the Christmas Island detention centre riot following the death of the Iranian refugee over the weekend.
0: Hi, I'm Dallas Rogers, and you're listening to the Conversation Speaking with Podcast. And as we've just heard there's been a lot of debate about australia's refugee intake and broader questions about our various migration programs i'm speaking with shanthi robertson and ian Ung about refugees immigrants and borders and shanthi starts our discussion with a fairly heavy idea
2: i think the mandatory detention of people who have committed no crime their indefinite detention, the ongoing effects of being incarcerated and having absolutely no idea when you might even have the possibility of getting out. We don't even do that to prisoners who've committed horrific crimes. We at least tell mass murderers, you're going to be here forever or you're going to be here for 20 years. I think we will look back on that and it will be looked back on as a very dark and inhumane period of Australia's history. I think for this generation's children and grandchildren, it will be looked back upon like the stolen generation, like the genocide of Indigenous people, as a complete violation of human rights in a really dark period of Australia's history.
0: Now, I just want to let you contemplate that for a minute. The idea that Australia's immigration and detention regimes have become so punitive that future generations will look back on our inaction and say
2: Why didn't you do anything about it?
0: I just couldn't shake this idea. In fact, it travelled home with me. And it even came back to haunt me later that night when I was watching the ABC's Q&A show.
2: Now our next question is on a different subject, comes from Chris Hagen. I think we'll look back on uh, the offshore detention of refugees with the same level of horror and disdain as we do now with previous government's um, uh, abuse of human rights with stolen generations.
0: Now this is a big claim and migration and globalisation scholars take it seriously and they start by rethinking an idea that's at the heart of Australian migration and globalisation debates.
1: Let's begin by saying that we live in a country called Australia, and my starting point really is to not taking Australia for granted that has very fixed borders and a very fixed identity. I am In Ang. I am a Professor of Cultural Studies at the Institute for Culture and Society, Western Sydney University. Of course, All countries are part of of a larger world and there are flows between countries which make our borders in cultural terms and social terms quite porous rather than fixed.
0: Like the idea of the nation state, Shanti says the idea of the border also needs to be rethought.
2: Effectively, migration is moving from one place to another. It's a spatial movement, it's crossing a border. I'm Shanthi Robertson and I'm a senior research fellow at the Institute for Culture and Society at Western Sydney University. So a lot of migration studies has looked at the impact on space of migration. So how, you know, cultures and places change because of new people coming in and also how cultures and places change when people leave and when people move back and forth. So that's been a really big focus, but also I guess space, not necessarily as something tangible, but as something that's imagined. So where people imagine they belong, how people imagine their homelands, for example and the places that they belong to but also kind of spatial concepts like the border which is both a tangible physical manifestation of place but it's also something that we all kind of collectively imagine for specific sorts of political and social ends and migrants obviously are these subjects that cross the border so They make us think really seriously about borders, not just a national border between different nation states, although obviously that's really important, but borders around who belongs and who doesn't belong, borders around what we want our kinds of national cultures and our urban cultures to look like. So that idea of the border, I guess, has been quite important. The sheer numbers of refugees and migrants making their way into Europe are setting daily records. On Thursday alone, more than 7,000 are thought to have crossed from Greece into Macedonia.
1: Indonesia says these asylum seekers were turned back after Australia paid off those who were transporting them.
0: Ian and Shanthi ask us to think about the physical and cultural borders, and even the spaces between countries in a different way.
2: If you go back to a colonial Australia, space and time between, say, London and the colony of New South Wales was so different to how we think of it today. And really, those early movements of people from the UK to Australia were based on a punitive dimension of space and time. The reason why being sent to this penal colony was such a punishment was because it was so very, very far away and it was all, how punitive it was, was based on how long you were meant to go there for. And you know, for a lot of people, that time was very indefinite. There was very little chance that they'd ever have the resources or the abilities to go back. So migration was kind of, wasn't even called migration then, I guess, but it was quite permanent. And I guess as we start moving through that history, when we get to federation, a lot of people don't realise that migration was a really core reason why the states of Australia, all those different colonies, even federated. A big motivation for that unification into a nation-state was the ability to control who came in. And that was, of course, based really heavily on race. After the gold rush and huge influxes of Chinese migrants coming to the goldfields, Federation was largely motivated by this idea of wanting to maintain a wide Australia. After Federation, the continued push to build up the population, mostly from Britain, also was really located, I think, in space and time. It was located in Australia's geographical position in Asia. And it's a historical moment of this fear of the white nation and the anxieties of the white colonial nation geographically positioned, yeah, this kind of quite threatening Asian population. Australia, the great sunny continent of the Southern Seas, over 30 times the size of Great Britain, yet with a population of less than that of London. 98% are of British stock a bright, young country with lots to live for. After the post-war era and the white Australia policy gradually starting to break down, those ideas of who could be Australian obviously started to alter and become more culturally diverse. But I think even with the advent of multiculturalism in the 70s, the story of multiculturalism was still one of temporal certainty and temporal permanence. It was still that idea that people would settle here permanently, they would build lives, they would become the term back then, which we now think of as very assimilationist, was new Australians. So again, it was nation building. It was about the future of the nation and the national population in a more permanent way. My research now is seeing a very different kind of migration, a migration that's potentially very circular, potentially very transient, where the horizons between being temporary and being permanent are very uncertain and very intermeshed. Most people that are mobile today have an expectation that that mobility might be ongoing, that it might be circular, that it's not this complete temporal break and the beginning of a new life and a kind of letting go of the past of the homeland.
0: So different cultures of migration inform how and why people choose to migrate and cultural understandings of migration interact with government policy in some pretty interesting ways.
2: So it's hard to say cause and effect when you're talking about cultures of migration, you know, people's desires and decisions about how they move and policy. The two continually inform each other and interplay with each other, I think. So in some ways that circularity is a result of policy, but in some ways the circularity also feeds back into policy. So you know, we had this nation building approach in the post-war era, right? So our immigration minister Arthur Caldwell famously said, I think in about 1945, that we had to populate or perish. The mission on which I am now embarking is vital to the nation. I am going abroad to seek ships or immigrants. If we have no ships, we shall get no immigrants. And without immigration, the future of the Australia we know will be both uneasy and brief. As a nation, we shall not survive. So it really was a nation building and a permanent settler kind of paradigm. What we're seeing now with neoliberalisation is migration much more being about flexible labour and an approach to migration that's based on people's capital. So it's a very hierarchical selection process and we try to quantify migrants based on what we think their economic value is going to be to the nation-state and that's not just about labor value it was always about labor value to a certain extent but now it's also about people's value as consumers and investors so that's why we see things like the high significance to the Australian economy of student visas and also investor visas as well and alongside that, we've seen a reduction in the number of migrants we take through categories that we just don't see, or the government doesn't see as adding economic value. So it's been a pretty drastic reduction in humanitarian entrants and also family visas.
0: My name is Scott Morrison, and I am the new Minister for Immigration. You have been brought to this place here because you have sought to illegally enter Australia by boat. The new Australian government will not be putting up with those sorts of arrivals. If you have a valid claim, you will not be resettled in Australia. You will never live in Australia.
2: I think asylum policy and voluntary migration policy are really, really closely related, but then at the same time they're not as separate and distinct as people think they are. So again, it's that discursive construction of who is a desirable migrant economically and who's an undesirable migrant economically. And often refugees get put in the second category. They're only going to be a burden on the state, on the health system, on the welfare system. They require all of this assistance, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, migration policy, you know, favors people who are going to be wage earners, people who are middle class or often elite or wealthy. So refugees fall into this category where we think of them as marginalized and disenfranchised and therefore a social burden. But they can also, in reality, if we look at the reality of what happens with refugee settlement, they can also be highly resilient and highly entrepreneurial groups in our community. We had ABS data come out this year, and it does show that although migrants who arrive as refugees have lower overall incomes than skilled migrants, which is probably an obvious point, they had the highest proportion of their incomes from running their own businesses than any other migrant group, so they're highly entrepreneurial, they're survivors, they understand how resilience works, they work extremely hard when they are employed, and their income grows over time.
0: We have a proud record of welcoming people from 140 different nations.
2: But we will decide who comes to this country and the circumstances in which they come. The other thing I think that really connects refugee policy and skilled migration policy is a discursive element. We think about governments like the Howard government and the Abbott government as being very tough on migration think in general, the public would think of them as anti-immigration prime ministers. But during the Howard era, we had the highest levels of immigration we've ever seen in this country. So conservative governments, particularly coalition governments, are not actually anti-immigration. They're under massive pressure from industrial lobbies to import workers. Industrial lobbies love migration because they get workers who are very dependable and often cheaper and often willing to do the kinds of work that Australian workers are not willing to do. And there's a lot of pressure from that lobby on the government to keep increasing levels of migration. The way asylum comes into play is it enables a conservative government to have high levels of immigration, but still appease an electorate that has populist anti-immigration sentiments. So if you put all of the attention in the media on asylum, on the threat of people arriving by boats, if you create these terms like illegal maritime arrivals, if you link them to terrorism, if you make everybody look over there at the boats coming across and at the detention centres, then your skilled migration policy and the record numbers of people coming through those other migration pathways can just flow underneath, unquestioned. So there's been big policy changes and I guess a lot of the policy changes that I talk about in my work are the result of neoliberalisation of policy. But immigration policy is quite particular in that neoliberal space because there's a tension there in the way governments advocate for the free movement of capital and the tensions that still exist, particularly in public anxieties around allowing people and labour to move freely across borders as well.
0: Throughout much of Australia's European history, the idea that Asia is right on our doorstep has caused waves of public anxiety. From the White Australia policy which favoured immigrants from English-speaking countries, to current concerns about Chinese nationals buying up houses or taking our jobs. Australians haven't always been comfortable with our geographical proximity to Asia.
1: I and most Australians want our immigration radically reviewed and that of multiculturalism abolished. I believe we are in danger of being swamped by Asians. Between 1984 and 1995, 40% of all migrants into this country were of Asian origin.
0: Labor wants the best possible free trade agreement with China, a high quality agreement that creates and protects Australian jobs. Yeah. A deal that generates high-skill, fair-paying jobs here in Australia and ensures that Australians are given the first opportunity to do the work in Australia.
1: Geography is a factual thing, but how people feel about geography is a cultural thing.
0: That's Ian Ng.
1: A lot of Australians might Know that Asia is actually geographically very close, but they feel quite distant towards it. So, there is an important American political scientist, he came up with the term distant proximity. I think that's an interesting term. So, like we, Australia and Asia, th- that relationship is characterized by a sense of distant proximity. So, you, you are actually close in terms of geography, but far away in terms of feelings and sense of affinity and so forth.
0: So Australia has always been a part of Asia, at least geographically. So the interesting changes in our relationship with Asia are not geographical or physical, but cultural.
1: 1960s, 1970s, when migration policy, the change started, opened up for uh, non-white people, so that was the end of the White Australia policy. Since then, uh, more and more uh, migrants coming into Australia are from Asia, and that, that has actually really changed, for example, the composition of the big cities in terms of population, what is also changing very rapidly is the uh, business links between Australia and, and many different Asian countries. Lots of Asian tourists come, come to Australia. And as also, on the other side, Australians also become more familiar with Asian countries as tourist countries and increasingly also as countries where people work. So there are quite a lot of Australian expats, for example, in places like Hong Kong and Singapore. So there is that interconnection that takes place through flows of people, but also flows of of money, flows of ideas and so forth. So because of that, I think Asia is becoming closer to Australia, not just geographically, but also in terms of uh, culture. And as you know, Australia's relationship with Asia has been on the political agenda for some time. It's not a new issue. In the 1990s, Paul Keating, then Prime Minister, was very adamant that Australia's place is in Asia. And a few years ago, we had the Gillard government coming out with a report, a white paper, uh, Australia in the Asian century.
0: So the Australian government has uh, set up for the so-called Asian century paper coming. Hillary Clinton has written about America's Pacific century. What's going on? Well, pretty interesting difference in terminology there. I think what both countries are wrestling with, what governments are wrestling with, is the immense significance of the rise of Asia and of course particularly the rise of China. So the world is shifting towards Asia and the cultural narratives about Australia and Asia are changing too.
1: I do think that Australia is in an interesting spot in that respect. I think uh, the, the importance of Asia, and especially we have to think here of not Asia in general. China, I think, is the most important country in Asia and the most powerful country economically, but therefore also increasingly politically. And countries like the United States and, and certainly U- European countries, they realise this and they are now much more aware of the importance of establishing good relations with China and the rest of Asia. But in terms of migration, for example, I think Australia is in that sense quite further ahead because the percentage of Asian migrants in Australia, it's about 8%, I think, of, of the population is much higher than For example, in the US, which is 4%, and places like the UK, only 2%. So, in that sense, Australia is becoming much more Asian in itself. Economically, Asia is becoming more and more important for Australia. So, uh, even though historically Australia was much more focused on Europe and the United States, In this coming century, uh, Australia's relationship with Asia is going to be much more important for prosperity and security.
0: In fact, Ian has just published a report that looks towards building the cultural skills we might need to unlock the long-term benefits.
1: It's interesting because the, the report, we've decided to call it smart engagement with Asia. What does this word smart mean? And is there such a thing as unsmart engagement with Asia? And implicitly we say, yes, there is such a thing as not very smart engagement with Asia. And that is the type of engagement which is very short term, very much uh, dominated exclusively by issues of making money, uh, which is very transactional and not really a form of engagement which is focused on on genuine, long-term and sustainable relationship building. It takes time to build these relationships. It requires commitment on both sides. It requires establishing some evidence-based findings about what needs to be done for Australia to become a a more integrated part of the Asian region.
0: And it's hard to measure the opportunities that these changing intercultural relationships might afford. So rather than looking at migration in very rigid nation-state terms, with hard legal and physical borders, that are regulated and controlled by government policy, We need to also look at the relationships between countries to understand how the flow of people and money and skills and labour might be shaping Australia.
2: So that sort of classical 20th century story of migrant success, starting from nothing, working your way up and the broader social changes. I think that shows a longer term view of migration, which I think is sort of dropping out a little bit in current policy frameworks because the current policy understanding is we need oil and gas engineers in this particular region in Northwest Australia now, because we're having a mining boom, so we need people with those very specific skills for a short period of time in this one specific area. And the longer term sort of benefits um, are missed in that sort of narrative of migration. The most desperate place for policy change is asylum policy. One of the reasons why I avoid doing research in that space is because it's so deeply depressing and demoralising. If we think about that temporal frame again, I think the mandatory detention of people who have committed no crime, their indefinite detention, which again, if we talk about temporality, is punitive. Even if we do look at it a completely economically rationalist framework, it's so expensive. Mandatory detention is costing us so much money. The militarization of our borders is so incredibly costly in an economic sense. It's completely costly. The psychic and social cost is immense as well. And it makes it so much harder when people do get resettled for them to lead fulfilling lives and to lead valuable lives when they have these years of lost time. If I had a magic wand to change policy, that's the area where I would absolutely change it.
0: Thank you for listening to this Speaking With podcast. Just a reminder, you can subscribe to this podcast series on iTunes or through TuneIn Radio. And if you liked this podcast or have ideas or suggestions for the Speaking With series, please leave us a review or comment through iTunes. I'm Dallas Rogers. See you next time.